There's a difference between perception and reality, between what seems to be and what really is. Sometimes that can be very painful in personal experience. Have there been times when you just knew something was a certain way and you were just willing to stake everything on it being that way only to find out you were wrong? That's always happening to me. Occasionally my wife and I will get in a dispute or an argument about something and I just know I'm right. Never am. But I just know that in this case I'm right. And I will say now, I know it's this way and I'm right this time and you are wrong. And I'd just be willing to, if I were a betting man, to bet the house and farm that uh, this is the way it is wrong again. Perception is often sincere, but it's often based on inadequate information, and it depends on the senses. For example, this pulpit seems stationary and solid, but we know it's really empty space with electrons moving about it in rapid succession, and that it's structured to appear stationary and solid. And it looks like that the sun rises, but we know that it doesn't. And it seems that the sky is blue, and it really has no color. It's the darkness of outer space. And it seems that the world is flat, but all of us know that it's really not flat. Oh, I think there's a group I heard about who believe that it is. And when they sent uh, the uh, pictures back from outer space, they just swear that a communist conspiracy uh, put pictures there that the earth was round to fool us and it's just a part of a communist plot but most of us believe that the world is round even though it looks flat. There's a difference between perception and reality. That's biblical. In the sixth chapter of Second Kings the servant of Elisha looked out his window and he saw the enemy encompassing their house, and death was imminent, and he was frightened, and he told Elisha about it. And Elisha said, that's the perception, the reality is, that those who are with us are greater or more than those that are against us. And he prayed that God would open his eyes, and when he looked out again, he saw the reality, that there were horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. And the prophet and the Pharisees said that John the Baptist was possessed of a demon, but he really wasn't. And they said that Jesus was a wine-bibber, but he wasn't. For there's a difference between perception and reality. And nowhere is that more pronounced than in the cross resurrection. For the cross appears to be the greatest tragedy in the history of man. And so the disciples on the road to Emmaus said, We had hoped that it was he who would restore Israel. And there's nothing quite as tragic as living your life out in the light of some glorious dream, only to see that dream fade like a mirage. But those who came to the empty tomb, those who came on that first Easter to celebrate it, and those of us who have come since know that things are not really what they seem to be, that the reality is far different than the perception. And the resurrection 
is the cause of that and makes all the difference. For example, because he lives, God has vindicated the way of the cross for all time. And when he was dead, they took him down and they put him in a tomb. And that was the end until God took over. And while deathly death settled on the earthly world, there was another world that was in action, in commotion. And while there was one mastery of forces on Calvary, there was a new mastery of forces in progress. And while that body was lying still in death, it was at the same time moving forth in triumph. He was pronouncing his verdict to perfect obedience that the way of the cross was the way of triumph. Someone has said that when Jesus died on the cross, that was his payment for our sins. And when God raised him from the dead, that was God's guarantee that it was enough. But for a while, it didn't look like that. Out there on Calvary, the two forces of life were locked in a life and death struggle. On one hand, you had the Roman Empire, the largest, strongest concentration of compulsive power in history. On the other hand, you had an itinerant preacher saying, if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto me. On the one hand, you had vast vested interests, you had moral cowardice, and you had self-serving desire. On the other hand, you had unselfish service, you had moral courage and suffering love. On the one hand was the philosophy, what is yours is mine and I'll take it. On the other hand, you had the philosophy that says, what is mine is yours and you can have it. On the one hand was arrogance, on the other hand was humility. On the one hand was evil, on the other hand was good. And it seemed for a while that everything base and evil in unregenerate man had triumphed. Evil had won its day. Even Jesus said, this is the hour, this is the power, your power, and the hour of your darkness. And evil had won. And then God spoke his word of triumph. And when he raised Jesus from the dead, he vindicated the faith of his disciples in the ultimate triumph of good over evil and right over wrong. And God was saying in the resurrection of Jesus that my purposes for man in the world will ultimately triumph. God was saying that the kingdom of God will ultimately triumph and the way of the cross is the right way. And so those disciples could go out of that room into the darkness of all that was happening around them and rejoice knowing that the way of good will ultimately triumph over evil. And the way of service will triumph over exploitation. And love is stronger than hatred and grace is greater than our sin. Now, it didn't seem that way. The perceived, the perception was 
that the way of Christ, the way of God's will, the way of the cross is doomed to defeat and death. The reality is that it's the way, that is the way of victory and triumph. There's a difference between perception and reality because of the resurrection in this sense. Because he lives, God has vanquished man's last enemy. In Plato's dialogue, he has the account of the last hours of Socrates. Socrates is in an Athens prison waiting, awaiting the execution of the court sentence that at sundown he's to drink the hemlock, poisoned hemlock. Early in the morning on that last day Socrates lived, his disciples came to visit him and they stay all day to talk. They talk about immortality. Where will the philosopher go when he dies? Will he enter into a new conscious state of existence? What lies beyond this experience called death? That was the question. And they talked about it and they debated it. It is the debate on many of lips. It is the debate of many a heart. What lies beyond this? At the end of the day, shortly before his death, one of the disciples summed up their despair when he said, it is impossible to acquire any certainty concerning these questions. So I suggest that one gather together all the irrefutable notions of man and make them a raft on which he sails through life. And they left that room in despair and hopelessness. The same kind of despair and hopelessness that Simon Peter experienced when the King James translation says that he came into the palace of the high priest and sat down to watch the end. And it's the same kind of despair and disillusionment that covers many a heart. Millions of people in my world and yours experience the same kind of despair and hopelessness. It oozes out of every pore of our, our culture. Pick up the modern play, go to the modern theater, and you'll see it again and again, the despair and the hopelessness of man. Ask anybody on the street, and he'll tell you that there's really no hope. We can't withstand the onslaught of the evil that's in our world, he will tell you. He feels that a kind of a grim inevitability has moved in upon us and that it's just a matter of time and so many feel what's the use. And even the church has experienced that same kind of fatalistic defeat. And so we have sat down to watch the end, the end of Western civilization, the end of law and order, the end of credibility in government, the end of the church, the end of the family, the home, its demise, the end of religion, the end of God. 
A man took his life in Central Park in New York City. He left a note. The note said, I'm not important to anybody. Nobody gives a hang about me. I'm just a peanut in Yankee Stadium, and I've decided to step on myself once and for all. That kind of fatalism is expressed in Hemingway's statement that man is like a colony of ants trapped in a burning log. That man is kind of trapped in a historical, economic, biological determinism. And there is no hope for man. So sit down and watch the end. It's just a matter of time. And when I see Simon Peter there in that palace, and when I listen to these disciples on their road, on the road to Emmaus in their despair, and when I watch as the disciples gather in an upper room and lock the door for fear, and when I feel the pulse of the fatal, fatalistic, the hopelessness of our time, I'm reminded of Tennyson's marvelous work, The Passing of Arthur. King Arthur's dead and his disciples have gathered on the bank, on the dock, and they build a raft and they put his body on it. Sir Bedivere is there, his best friend. And in an act of commitment like our burial, they shove that raft out on the ocean and let it sail out so that his body will ultimately sink to the depths. And Tennyson said, Long stood Sir Bedivere, revolving many memories, until the hull like a black dot emerged on the dawn. And on the mere the wailing died away, and when the wailing was past forevermore, the stillness of that dead world's winter dawn amazed him, and he groaned, The king is gone. And so Simon Peter gathered in the palace court and the people trudging on the way to Emmaus locked behind their doors for fear. They groaned, the king is gone. And death has triumphed. And then came that Easter morning and out of the bowels of the earth came the dead Christ living. And when he came from beneath the earth, from the jaws of death, he came triumphantly, conquered death. And when he conquered death, he conquered everything that conquers us. And so man can look down the red raw throat of death and rejoice knowing that death has no power over man any longer. The last enemy has been vanquished. You read anything about Winston Churchill? Perhaps one of the greatest, for sure, man who has ever lived. One of his trademarks was the victory sign. You remember that? Black cigar in the corner of his mouth, sign raised in victory. It was because of his courage, his dauntless bravery, that England was spared. Everywhere you see a picture of him, he'd have the V for victory, his hand upheld. I remember the, the last picture they made of him 
was on a stretcher. They came to the place where he lived to carry him away. He was stricken with a stroke. And they had him wrapped in blankets on the stretcher. And they were carrying him out to the ambulance for treatment. But his hand was extended out from beneath the blankets and the V-sign for victory. I got up early this morning, as did you on this Easter morning. Shower was falling to freshen our earth, beautiful spring day, evidence of life. And as I went into the place where I was going to spend a few moments preparing my heart spiritually for this hour, I saw the signs of victory everywhere. And Eugene O'Neill has that play in which he describes Polonius the centurion, names him Polonius, and he names Pilate's wife, Procula. And Procula comes to Polonius the centurion after they place Jesus in the grave and says, who was that man crucified yesterday? And Polonius said his name was Jesus of Nazareth. By what guilt was he charged? The centurion Polonius said they found no fault in him. Well, then why did they crucify him? Because he said, if you put me to death, if you destroy this temple, I'll raise it the third day. Procula said, where is he now? Is he in the tomb? Polonius said, no, ma'am, he's not. He's gone. Where is he, said Procula, pressing the question to Polonius. Polonius said, I don't know, but I think he's loose in the world. And no Jew or Gentile will ever stay his power. When he came out of that grave, God set him loose in the world, and that power is available to vanquish man's last enemy. Now, it didn't seem that way, did it? The perception was that Jesus was dead finally. The reality is Jesus is alive forever. One final thought, please. There's a, there is a difference between perception and reality in the sense that because he lives, God's final word is victory. Now, to understand the meaning of the cross resurrection, you have to have some kind of a theological understanding of Jesus. Who was he? The Bible says that he was perfect man, perfect God. He was as much God as if he'd never been man. He was as much man as if he'd never been God. He was God-man. And he came to live a sinless life. Even his closest associates who knew all about him realized that there was an aura about this man that was about no other. And his enemies who sought to find something wrong to charge him said that he is innocent. He was a perfect man. And because of his sinless life, he became qualified to be the Savior. 
And so God laid on him our sins, placed on him our sins. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, but God laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so he went to the cross bearing my sin and yours. And because I've identified with his death, my sin has been placed there and crucified with him. My sin was put to death when the sin bearer was put to death. But when we identify with him in death, as our sin dies, thus when we identify with him in the resurrection, his resurrected life becomes our life. Now that's what Paul was talking about in that marvelous passage in the sixth chapter of Romans. Let me read it to you. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Listen to that. If our sin was put to death at Calvary, and, it was, and Jesus was raised from the dead, and we are identifying in his life with him in the resurrection, then we have freedom over sin. We don't have to sin. Now, when Jesus died on the cross, he saves us from the penalty of sin, but when he was raised from the dead, he saved us from the power of it. Now, watch this. Now, if we, believe, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death hath no dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive in Christ Jesus. Good news. He breaks the power of canceled sin and sets the captives free. For the resurrection we celebrate today is not an event that happened thousands of years ago, and Jesus is not somebody whose name is buried in a history book or is tied in the, in the grave clothes of a dead theology. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. The resurrection is not a, an event we celebrate. The resurrection is a person we know who has come to indwell us and to make his life available for you and I to live so that we can have throne life. We can have triumphant life. We can have dominion life. This story and I'm through. A man went to see a hockey game. It was a little bit unique because it was played, the, the players on the hockey teams were retarded. They were from an institution in the city and they were mentally impaired, mentally retarded. And he said it was a great game and it was nip and tuck, two to one, until the last 30 seconds 
and the team that was behind by one, one goalie, one score, one goal, made a, made a charge to the, to the goal and scored a puck that tied the game just as the buzzer went off, two to two. And the man said, you know, I was, I, I was, I was for neither team, really, so it didn't matter to me who won. But he said, I was a little bit disappointed that they scored that final puck, that final goal, because, you know, nobody won. It was like kissing your sister, he said. Until he said, I saw the goalie of the team that was ahead two to one jumping up and down in exultant joy, shouting, everybody's won, everybody's won. There's a difference between perception and reality. I want you to know that in Christ Jesus, everybody here can win. You can win over worry. You can win over sin. You can win over death, everybody wins. Now, what I have tried to say is not something Jesus might have said if he were here, but what Jesus has said because he is here. And so the invitation time has come. And some people ask me, why do you give invitations at church? This is the reason. Because the Bible was written for decision. It wasn't written just to enjoy. It was written for decision, to confront us with need. So that if a person preaches the Bible, he preaches for decision. And it's time to decide. Will you decide this morning if you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian? Will you decide to accept Christ as your Savior? Will you invite him into your life this morning? By faith, will you accept him? Will you commit your life to him? The decision is for the church to claim the victory that's available. Perhaps you need to come and put your life here by statement, promise a letter. You just may need to come rededicate your life. Things may look grim, may look bad, but the reality is God cannot and will not be defeated. Won't you join up with him? Line up with him. And so after we've had prayer, we'll invite you to come.